welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Jason Cherry on March 19th. sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let's pray together. O merciful God, Heavenly Father, because your word is a candle to our feet and a light that illumines our way, we ask that through Christ, who is the true light, you will open and enlighten our hearts that we can understand your word and form our lives accordingly. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage is about three things. First, the issue of trapping Jesus. Second, the issue of flattering Jesus. And third, the issue of taxing Jesus. So let's take them in their order. First, the issue of trapping Jesus. You see in the story that Jesus is asked a question about paying taxes. The question is asked by those who have already rejected Jesus. And so now they're on a mission to destroy him. And here they are trying to trap him, according to verse 13. The word trap used in verse 13 is a word used for catching an animal in a snare. And the trap is the question found in verse 14. And so they ask, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So how is that a trap? How is this question in verse 14 a trap? Well, the question is about taxes. And the Roman taxes were unpopular. They were even the cause of Jewish revolts one of which is mentioned in Acts chapter 5, verse 37. And so Jesus the Galilean is in Judea. And as Jesus the Galilean is in Judea, he is confronted by the Judean ruling class about the tax due to Rome. Now one of the nuances here you have to appreciate is that Galileans did not have to pay this tax. Galilee does not pay this tax, but Judea does pay the tax. And there are several types of tax, including a property tax and also a tax on agricultural products. Now, the Roman historian Tacitus said that Judea was exhausted by taxes. So this is a volatile political issue in Judea. Now, their question to Jesus is related to the poll tax, also called the census tax. This tax charged based on the number of people that lived in a household. 
And so the trap is this. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, if Jesus answers yes, then that alienates the Jewish patriots who despise these unjust taxes. If he answers no, then Jesus' enemies can accuse him of rebelling against Caesar. And so they're trapping him. They're trying to put Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. And notice, they're not asking about the legitimacy of taxes per se. The question is, can we Jews pay taxes to a foreign king? The silver denarius was the required coin for tax payment. But this was a special coin. It had a portrait, an engraving of the emperor and the inscription, Son of the Divine Augustus. Now this is referring to Caesar Augustus. And so for Jews, this was politically and religiously offensive. Some Jews interpreted the graven image in words of the coin as idolatrous. And rightly so, given the meaning, the central meaning of the Roman Empire as it was organized around Caesar Augustus was that Caesar is the benevolent one for those who live in the kingdom. Caesar, in other words, brings salvation to the people of the Roman Empire. Well, the Jewish people certainly can't agree to that. And so, for day-to-day -day commerce, the Jews tended to avoid idol idolatry by using copper coins that bore no graven image of Caesar. Now, notice in verse 15, Jesus does not have a silver coin, but the questioners do have a silver coin. Jesus brings this to light in verse 15 to reveal their hypocrisy, we're told. You see, this whole episode is hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy for those Jewish leaders who are trying to trap Jesus. How is it hypocrisy? Well, they carry around silver coins with the graven image of Caesar. And then they try to trap Jesus on the matter of the coin, yet Jesus himself doesn't even carry the coin with the graven image. This is hypocrisy. And what does this reveal? Well, this reveals something about people who try to trap Jesus. People who try to trap Jesus tend to have their hypocrisy handed to them in a very public fashion. And here in the story, they're pretending to follow God. These are the Jewish leaders. They're pretending to follow God, and yet they carry around the idol Caesar in their pocket. This is their hypocrisy, and it should stand as a warning to us. When you try to entrap Jesus, usually it ends up with your hypocrisy being handed right back to you. And furthermore, in this passage, we learn how to respond to trappers and testers who scorn Jesus. There's always some self-appointed inquisitor who's watched a few too many YouTube videos who think they can get you. They want to play got you with Christians. They think they can weaken you. They think they can hamper Jesus with their YouTube argument they've memorized. And they think they've got you with their guile and their trick questions. How are we to respond to the trappers and the testers who scorn Jesus? 
Well, we should respond like Jesus responds. And notice, Jesus does not use violence. He doesn't respond with anger. Rather, he speaks God's truth with clarity and conviction. And we would be wise to do the same to the trappers and testers among us. And so first in this passage is the issue of trapping Jesus. Second is the issue of flattering Jesus. Let's look now in verse 14. <clears throat> and they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? And you have to understand in verse 14 that they are pretending. They are pretending to be sincere. And we know this because verse 15 tells us. Verse 15 calls them calls their actions and their words hypocrisy. So this isn't real praise. This is pretend praise. And this is called the sin of flattery. And notice that flattery has three characteristics. First, flattery is insincere. You're saying something, but you don't really agree. Second, flattery is hypocrisy. We're told that in verse 15. And then the third characteristic of flattery is that it's motivated by some special interest. In this case, they're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to publicly embarrass Jesus. So flattery has three characteristics. Flattery is insincere, it's hypocrisy, and it's got an ulterior, an ulterior agenda. It's trying to get someone to do something else. Now, <clears throat> notice also that all the things that they say in verse 14 are true. That reveals something else about flattery. Flattery can use the truth for wrong motives. So flattery is willing to concede some virtues to Jesus in order to ruin him at another point. That's what flattery does. So, so you're taking something that's true and then you're using it to get some other outcome that you desire. Now in John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress, the flatterer takes Christian and Hopeful down a path. They relax their guard, and the flatterer ensnares them in a net. And this is exactly how flattery works. Flattery says all these things, oh, you're so great, you're so great, and it gets you off your guard. And then once you're off your guard, you're entrapped. And in this way, flattery is a form of deception. Now, sometimes the flatterer deceives the victim, and sometimes the flatterer deceives himself just as much as he deceives his victims. When you flatter someone, it's easy to trick yourself into thinking that you're serving the person. Look, I'm saying all these nice things about this person. I'm doing something great. But in actuality, you're lying to them. You're saying, oh, you're so great, you're so great, but you're doing that to manipulate them to get something else out of them. You're pretending, just like in verse 14, they're pretending. You're pretending to build someone up when in fact you're trying to bring them to ruin. You're trying to manipulate them to get them to do what you want them to do. Now, in Dante's Inferno, 
Flatterers are far down in hell, in the eighth of nine circles. Dante's eighth circle of hell also includes panderers and seducers, which suggests that flattery and then pandering and seducing are all sins that are closely related. Now Dante's punishment for flattery is immersion in feces. And of course he's right, because flatterers are full of feces. And this is why we should all be on guard against the sin of flattery. We should all be on guard against flattering others. And we should also, in this case, Jesus is the one being flattered. So we should be on guard against being flattered and then being manipulated into do something that we don't intend. For example, a spouse exaggerates their thanks for an expensive gift, hoping the excessive gratitude gets them more expensive gifts in the future. A teacher writes recommendation letters for his students and says in each letter, this is my very best student. An employee praises their boss's leaderships, leadership and accomplishments because they want a promotion and a raise. A child brown noses their parents to try to avoid punishment for their bad behavior. We should be on guard against flattery. Be on guard against flattering others and be on guard against being flattered by those who are just trying to deceive you. And maybe you think, well, what's the big deal with flattery? I mean, the things they say about Jesus in verse 14 are true. Maybe someone else heard them and then thereby they heard something true about Jesus. I and mean, what's the harm? Well, the harm, remember, is that flattery is a form of deceit. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, Jesus critiques those who use the empty phrases of many words in their prayers that conceal the hypocrisy of their hearts. And that's the same thing that happens in flattery. It's the empty phrases of many words that is concealing the deception and the hypocrisy in your heart. When deceitful words go out of your mouth, Meaningful words find no place in your heart, according to John chapter 8, verse 37. When deceitful words go out of your mouth, you can't bear to hear the word of Christ, according to John chapter 8, verse 43. When deceitful words go out of your mouth, you refuse to obey Christ, according to John chapter 14, verse 24. And so hear that again. When empty words go out of your mouth, even if they happen to be true, in the case of flattery, when empty words go out of your mouth, meaningful words find no place in your heart. That's the harm of flattery. You can't justify flattery and say, it's true, it's true, it's technically true. No, it's deception. You're training your heart towards hypocrisy. You're training your heart towards deception. And so when flattery is on your lips, your heart has a hard time hanging onto the words of life. And children especially are prone to flattery because they're naive enough to think they can get away with it. And so children, you need to listen very carefully. When you try to flatter your parents or, or someone in authority over you, they always see right through it. Children, you have to understand, they always know what you're doing. 
you're not getting away with anything. But what you are doing is you're training your heart now to be deceptive. And that is very dangerous. Jesus warned that on the day of judgment, we will give an account for every careless word we speak. This is Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 through 37. Now, why does he say that? <clears throat> well, it's because of what he says in Matthew chapter 15, verse 18. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And so the words that you're speaking reveal something about the heart. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 26 says, A flattering mouth works ruin. And you might think it works ruin on the person you're manipulating, and certainly that's possible if you're not cunning enough to escape it like Jesus does here. But also, it works ruin in your heart if you're the one doing the flattering. And when flattery is found on your lips, remember, you are following in the pattern of those whose mission was to ruin Jesus. You're running the same play that they're running, and their play is flattery. And so what we see in this passage is first, it's the issue of trapping Jesus. Second, it's the issue of flattering Jesus. And third, it's the issue of taxing Jesus. So now picking up in verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now this is an oft quoted passage. So let's start here. Let's start in verse 17. Notice in verse 17 that Jesus mentions two allegiances. And the key to understanding those two allegiances is to see that the second command, render to God the things that are God's, is the ground of the first command, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. In other words, you can't understand render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's until you understand that everything is God's. The all-important assumption of this passage is that from him and through him and to him are all things, as Romans 11.36 says. Once this fact of the universe God made is fixed in your thinking and applied to this statement, then you realize that Jesus' answer is not about avoiding a trap. Jesus' answer is far deeper and more expansive than anything his flatterers were asking for. How so? Well, the fact that God owns everything, the fact that God has all authority in the universe subordinates the first command, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, to the second command, render to God the things that are God's. If all is God's, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's is a subcategory of render to God the things that are God. And so the big mistake people make with this passage is they see two commands and so they envision those two commands side by side. So maybe they envision two circles side by side. And one circle is Caesar, which is God, or which is government, and then the other circle is God. And of course, if a Christian's drawing this little diagram, they make the Caesar circle really small to show them, put them in their place, and make the God circle really big. 
In truth, however, there is one giant circle. And inside that are other circles, okay? So there's one giant circle, and that circle means God owns everything, which is attested to in Scripture time after time after time. So there's one giant circle, God owns everything, and inside that circle are other circles, one of which is the smaller Caesar circle. You see, Jesus does not divide life into two circles, the, 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 the Caesar circle and the God circle, the sacred circle and the secular circle. The things that are Caesar's should not be interpreted to mean that Caesar has his own circle, should not be interpreted to mean that Caesar has control of the, of the political sphere without reference to the authority of God, while God keeps control only of other things, religious things. In fact, Romans 13 Verse 1 makes this clear. There is no authority except for God. So there's one circle. No authority except for God. God has authority over everything. And then any other sub-authorities he gives, whether it's government uh, or parents, that is within the bigger circle. And so whatever is Caesar's is God's. Therefore, rendering to Caesar his taxes, as also Romans chapter 13, verse 6 commands us, is an expression of rendering to God what is God's. Now, notice Jesus has his disciples pay a tax they don't even owe. They're Galileans. Galileans do not owe the Judean tax. And yet Jesus has the disciples pay it anyway. That's humbling and frustrating for Christians. Jesus has his disciples pay the tax even though the government of Caesar is corrupt, incompetent, immoral, murderous, and greedy. That's humbling. And for Christians, it's really frustrating. Jesus has his disciples pay the tax even though the power of Caesar is what will stand behind the crucifixion of Christ. Yet Christians pay their taxes because God has given Caesar a realm of authority and we comply with that. Sure, there are exceptions. We could spend all day on exceptions. For example, on the tax issue, I'll give you two just to kind of illustrate there's exceptions. If Caesar tells us to pay 91% of our income in taxes, then we don't do that. If God requires 10%, so yes, there are exceptions. If Caesar's taxes prohibit us from supporting our families, as we're commanded to do, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, well, then we support our families first. We don't pay the tax first. So there are other priorities that were given in Scripture. And so yes, there are exceptions to the tax thing, but they are few. And so Christians do pay taxes because God tells us to. And we can rest in the fact that Caesar, to whom we pay taxes, is not in charge of the world. God is in charge of the world. We submit to Caesar to acknowledge the supreme lordship of Jesus Christ. How and why? Well, because this is what Jesus did. 
This is the example Jesus gave us. Listen to Jesus' words in John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. Jesus says, I lay down my life that I may give it up again. No one takes it from me. Which is odd because it didn't seem that way when they came and seized him out of the garden and then crucified him. But Jesus says here, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. In John chapter 19, verse 11, Jesus tells Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. So even in the crucifixion of Christ, the supreme lordship of Christ is testified to. God is above Caesar's authority. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's means that in your rendering to Caesar and in the frustration of rendering to Caesar, that evil Caesar, we render to Jesus the full honor of full authority over Caesar. If God possesses all things, then that means one of the things he possesses is whatever liberties or powers or authority Caesar possesses, including the liberty of Pilate to crucify Jesus. And in this, it's not that Caesar has pretend authority, but rather that his authority depends on the authority of God. That's why there's the one giant circle. This is God's full authority over everything. And inside that authority come other authorities. And so we can say this. When man refuses to be governed by God, he ends up being ruled by Caesar. Now I want you to notice one more important thing here, picking up in verse 16. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. Now, so why does the coin belong to Caesar? It's because it has Caesar's image on it. Caesar can demand his coin. Okay, it's got his image on it. It belongs to him, so give it to him. In the providence of God, as we just discussed, Caesar has control over what is supposed to go to Caesar. So what is supposed to go to Caesar? That which has his image on it. What is supposed to go to God? That which has his image on it. And what bears the image of God? Human beings. And this leads to three concluding points of application. Number one, because we bear God's image, we must not render ourselves to Caesar. The fact that Caesar is not absolute means that even when we dutifully render to Caesar what is Caesar's, we render it differently because God is the king of the universe. In this, our obedience to Caesar dethrones him because we obey as an expression of the lordship of Jesus. Just as Christ willingly laid down his life through the authority structure of the Roman government, arresting him and crucifying him. And remember, Caesar also bears the image of God, which means that Caesar, that is government officials, owe God what is owed, namely their full allegiance. And so, 
First, we must not render ourselves to Caesar. Second, because our children bear God's image, we must not render our children to Caesar. That which goes to God is that which has his image. And that is your children. And so Christian parents are told to raise their kids in the nurture and admonition of God. And when children are in government schools, that means they are raised in the nurture and admonition of Caesar. And so we must not render ourselves to Caesar, and we must not render our children to Caesar. And third, and finally as we close, God and not Caesar decides which belongs to which. Does Caesar decide what belongs to Caesar and what belongs to God, or does God decide what belongs to Caesar and what belongs to God? You see, the question of who decides what belongs to what says a lot about where your loyalties lie. If the government says that it gets to decide what belongs to God, then it is making a total claim of supremacy, and this is called totalitarianism. And this is why Christians always resist totalitarianism, whether it's in the hands of an individual dictator or a bureaucracy. Our modern secular government thinks it has the right to determine what sphere of life is allowed to belong to God, so long as you keep it private. Well, Revelation chapter 13 describes the totalitarian state claiming religious authority, and it describes it as satanic. And so consider an example. If a virus with a mortality rate of less than 1% strikes the country, it's not the job of the governor or the president to close the churches. Such a decision, were it ever to be made, could only come from the elders of the church. And so, who decides what belongs to Caesar and what belongs to God? Well, if you say that government decides what belongs to government and what belongs to God, then that means that your loyalty goes to government. But if you think that God decides what belongs to government and what belongs to God, then that means your supreme loyalties go to God. Let's close by praying together. Heavenly Father, we live in a world that assumes the all-encompassing nature of state power. Help us as your people to assume the all-encompassing nature of your power, a power that raised Christ from the dead and purchased our salvations, forgiven us of our sins, and directs us to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.